Hello everyone, you're listening to episode 45 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And I'm really excited to bring you all this case today. I've been researching this since I think about the beginning of December um, and there's so much information out there on this case, I finally managed to get it all together. So this case is going to be in two parts just because of the sheer amount of information that is out there. For today's case, we're heading to St. Louis in Missouri in the US. A large amount of the information for today's case has come from reporter Jessica Tester. She has done some amazing investigatory work into this case, and a lot of the information surrounding this case most likely would not have come to light if it wasn't for Jessica's reporting. Listener discretion is advised for this episode as we discuss themes of sexual abuse and grooming. The woman at the centre of today's episode is Emily Morris. Emily was born on September 22nd, 1979. Even from a young age, Emily was determined, driven and disciplined. She didn't bother with crawling and at just 10 months old she started walking. This determination didn't fade as Emily grew older and when she started at Lindbergh High School she joined the diving team and the athletics team. She was loved by her teachers and determined as ever to succeed, Emily focused on getting into the cross-country team. At the time, Lindbergh High School was one of the largest high schools in Missouri. This status, of course, brought the best teachers in Missouri to Lindbergh High School, and the coach of the cross-country team was no exception. James Wilder coached the male cross-country team, but when the ladies coach left, he took on that team as well. All the parents loved James Wilder. He was an exceptional coach for his young age of mid-twenties, and under his coaching, Emily soon became the star of Lindbergh's cross-country team. Joan Morris, Emily's mother, described James Wilder as being, quote, Mr. Wonderful. She said he was a very sincere coach. He would always look you straight in the eye when he spoke to you. During Emily's freshman year, so this would make her around 15 years old, Coach Wilder started paying her close attention. This mentor-mentee relationship became more friendly and he started opening up to her at their one-on-one coaching sessions. Coach Wilder told Emily that his wife was pregnant and that he was, quote, very sexually frustrated because she was pregnant. By the time Emily entered her junior year, around the year of 1995, Coach Wilder had turned Emily into a compliant victim. It's important to note that this term, compliant victim, does not in any way, shape or form blame Emily. This term is given to teenagers who have been groomed over a prolonged period of time by an older individual, and as a result, that teenager has developed intense, passionate feelings for the molester, even though they are legally unable to give consent. This is a form of child sexual exploitation. The prolonged grooming means that the victim becomes compliant because of the molester's skills in making the victim seem that the relationship they have is a real one based on love and not on fantasy. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think like what you're trying to get at here is that that any kind of teacher or authority figure is in a position of power and what happens in these situations is that they groom their victims into sort of no longer seeing that position of power and where the victim actually is vulnerable in the mm-hmm. relationship. Um and instead they sort of see each other as as equals who both yeah, may be in love or um yeah, have kind of like mutual feelings for one another when actually the relationship would have very much started from a grooming perspective. So yeah, I do, I do see mm-hmm. what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really actually a better way of describing it than what I just how I just explained it. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So yeah, it's exactly that. Coach Wilder had created this compliant victim in Emily Morris and Emily began to feel intense feelings for him. They spent an enormous amount of time with each other during school hours and outside of school hours too. He continued to train her and she continued to excel within the cross-country team. But by the autumn of her junior year, Coach Wilder took his exploitation to the next level. At one particular training session, Coach Wilder asked the team to train at the large 16-acre park called Boar Park. James Wilder hid behind a tree and waited for Emily to run past. When she did, he called out to her to come over. He started flirting with her and continued to employ those same grooming tactics that he had been using on her for over a year. He asked Emily if she had any experiences with boys, to which Emily responded that there was a game called Chicken that she had played with a boy. Coach Wilder started touching Emily's leg and moved his hand up towards her vagina. When he reached her thigh, Emily said chicken, indicating that he should stop and that the game was over, but he didn't stop. He touched her vagina over her uniform, but abruptly stopped when another runner ran past them. After training, he took Emily home. When they got to Emily's house, she said that her parents went home and Coach Wilder invited himself in. In the lounge, James Wilder took Emily's knickers off and performed oral sex on her. She told him to stop, and, unlike in the park, this time he listened and he did stop. Emily said the two then went out into her garden for a little bit before he left. It's important to remember throughout this case that child sexual abuse has very little to do with sex and everything to do with power, like Sally said earlier, and during this period of her life, Coach Wilder had complete power and control over Emily Morris because of the years that he had systematically broken her down and made what he was doing to her feel as if it was a normal relationship. I'm going to use phrases such as sexual assault or abuse, but of course at the time Emily didn't see any of it as abuse or assault. In Missouri, the laws surrounding consent are different dependent on your age and the age of the other party, but in relation to Emily's situation... What Coach Wilder was doing was illegal and she could not legally consent to any sexual acts with him. In the state of Missouri, people aged 16 years or younger are not able to consent to sexual activity and an adult participating in such activity could be prosecuted for statutory rape. The law also states that once an individual becomes 21 years old or older in the state of Missouri, they cannot have sexual contact with an individual who's under the age of 17. Emily Morris was 16 at the time James Wilder performed oral sex on her, and he was 29 years old. Therefore, Emily could not legally consent, and as such, James Wilder had committed a crime. A few months after this sexual abuse on Emily in her parents' lounge, Emily qualified into the Lindbergh High School cross-country team that went out of state for competitions. She was the only girl to qualify into the team, and she, her parents, and her younger sister Andrea were over the moon at her achievements. On one particularly gruelling training session in Clydesdale Park, James Wilder sent all of the other runners to go practice, but asked Emily to stay behind. He then took her down to the public bathroom and made her perform oral sex on him. They were interrupted when someone else walked into the bathroom. Other instances of sexual abuse of this nature happened during Emily's time on the team in 1995, when she was just 16 years old. She said that there were instances when they were out of state for competitions and the whole team and other teachers would be having some downtime at the cinema as a group. During one cinema outing, James Wilder and Emily touched each other in the dark with another teacher sat right next to them. 
He also sexually assaulted her many times in the treatment room at the school and on more than one occasion he would make her hide in cupboards or boxes when other students or teachers came into the room to talk to him. Emily later told police that she performed oral sex or another sex act on Coach Wilder about once a week from then on. She told the police that she had thought they were in a relationship and they were having a top secret affair. A lot of Emily's friends knew about her, in inverted commas, relationship with Coach Wilder, but nobody understood the gravity of what was happening. They saw how happy it made Emily, and therefore they didn't see it as being wrong, until they'd all grown much older. One student, however, who didn't know Emily personally, saw Emily and Coach Wilder touching each other inappropriately, and this student reported it to the head teacher of Lindbergh High School in March of 1996. Joan and Richard Morris, Emily's parents, were called into the school and the head teacher told them that Emily had been accused of having an affair with a teacher. Emily's parents were completely outraged, but the head teacher calmed them down. He said that there had only been one accusation and that it was quite possible that it had been reported out of jealousy, due to the fact that Emily was the best runner at the school and James Wilder was the best coach. The head teacher said there was nothing to back up the accusation. Joan and Richard requested a meeting with James Wilder, and the head teacher also asked Emily to join that meeting. The meeting lasted around 30 minutes, and both Coach Wilder and Emily denied the accusations. The head teacher said he would drop the investigation, and Joan Morris asked for a formal letter exonerating her daughter, and the head teacher obliged and wrote one. The thing that I find so crazy about that event is the fact that the head teacher was like putting the blame on Emily and accusing Emily of having an affair rather than coach wilder having like this inappropriate affair with her or inappropriate relationship whatever you want to call it yeah it's a really odd dynamic and i think maybe some of it speaks a little bit to like how important college sports are in america um Mm -hmm. like obviously i'm not there so i don't know it but definitely like being from the uk that is my perception that there's um yeah they're hugely important there's a huge amount of kind of prestige that comes with either being very good at sport being a very good coach at sport or just being a very strong performing college um Mm -hmm. and I know that like a lot of times you see that like funding is quite linked to them and stuff so I think in comparison to here it would just be like a it would be a P teacher I mean it's not quite the same um not like dissing that career or anything but there there is no sort of like head of cross country coach in quite the same way like the majority of schools um and I don't know if some of it was like the head teacher trying to protect like that institution like of cross country was something they were very renowned for they were very successful at um then yeah maybe I guess it's partly like the protect the head teacher trying to protect that and also again just a sign of the times I think like uh, I don't think that it would probably be exactly the same now. Um, mm-hmm. And if, yeah, I don't know, it could be to do with her gender or just like the time. But yeah, I agree. It's quite strange. Mm. No, I, I get what you're saying. I think that does kind of make sense, is especially given that they were the um, best well, yeah, they were like the top rated high school in Missouri. So Yeah, and I mean and it's not a prosecutable crime for Emily. So by blaming Emily, it's within the teacher head teacher's powers to exonerate her. By blaming um the coach, it's that's a police matter. So I suppose by blaming mm. Emily it gives it means that the head teacher like retains the power to contain this story and deal oh, with yeah. it. Yeah, that's a really, really good point actually. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. That's a really good point. So, by senior year, Emily's feelings towards James Wilder had started to change. 
She started suffering with eating disorders and became bulimic after Coach Wilder saw a photo of her and told her that she needed liposuction. The photo was of Emily sitting on the floor in her cross-country kit, and on the back of the photo, Emily had written, Coach Wilder told me to get liposuction after he saw this picture. She was now 17, going on 18, and her parents started seeing a change in her. Andrea, her younger sister, remarked that she looked at Emily and thought that senior year must be so hard because all her sister did was cry. Emily's grades started to drop, but she was still excelling at cross-country. There was a competition to qualify for an out-of-state race. Joan and Richard Morris thought that Emily would be excited and raring to go, but on the day of qualifying, she said that she was sick and she didn't want to run in the race. Her parents couldn't believe it. Emily had always been so eager and ready to compete, and they were certain that she wouldn't want to miss this race, because without it, she wouldn't be able to compete in the out-of-state competition. Her parents ended up forcing Emily to participate in the race, but Emily bombed out of it on purpose, and she didn't qualify for the competition. It wasn't until many years later that she would tell her parents that she had purposefully lost, so she wouldn't have to go out of Missouri on an away trip with Coach Wilder. During her senior year, Emily's mood and behaviour got worse and worse and her family were incredibly worried about her. Joan sent her daughter to therapy, but she never opened up about why she was feeling so miserable. Her parents began to notice that Emily was more distant than usual and over time she stopped speaking to most of her friends. Emily graduated high school in 1997 and a scrapbook that she made the year she graduated gave a tribute to James Wilder, in which she wrote... I admire Coach Wilder for his warm heart and his compassionate ways, his ability to be both an incredible coach and a great friend. The scrapbook also contained lots of cut-up photos of Coach Wilder and Emily at various cross-country and sporting events. After high school, Emily went to Lindenwood University to study a degree in English. Jones said that getting Emily through college was a complete nightmare. Emily's mental health was incredibly low and she often had suicidal thoughts, she was deeply depressed and her bulimia got even worse. It's unclear if Emily linked her suffering mental health to the sexual abuse that she had suffered at the hands of Coach Wilder, but she certainly understood the connection many years later. Despite the challenging time that Emily faced at college, she managed to graduate in 2001 with her English degree. Then, after college, Emily met an older man who she fell in love with, and the couple got married and had two children by the year 2007. Her family saw a big change in Emily. She was really happy for the first time in a long time. Then, things began to change again for Emily. In December 2008, James Wilder was arrested for alleged sexual contact with a female student at Lindbergh High School. For reference, just so we're all on the same time frame, this arrest and alleged sexual assault contact occurred 12 years after James Wilder had first sexually abused Emily Morris. Emily didn't come forward as a witness in this case. She said at the time that she thought that what had happened to her was different. She hadn't been sexually abused or assaulted by James Wilder. She still believed that the relationship they'd had had been consensual. Adding to this, her husband hadn't known that Emily had been involved with her high school coach when she'd been just a teenager, and therefore coming forward would have exposed her. She said that she didn't want to rock the boat on her marriage, and she didn't want her children to find out, especially given the fact that they would likely end up attending the Lindbergh High School where Coach Wilder still worked. She didn't want to cause any embarrassment for them. The 2008 charge against Coach Wilder didn't end up going to trial, and the investigation against him was dropped in February 2009, just two months after the charge had been brought. 
the St. Louis County Prosecutor's Office announced that it had, quote, no credible evidence that any sexual contact had taken place. That is literally just sums it up as well. Like, I know you need evidence, but no credible evidence. Like, I bet my ass they had either someone accusing him or someone saying they'd seen something. It's like, the minute you stop seeing, like, children as credible witnesses then like, that's the reason none of these cases ever go anywhere no completely and so like with regards to the victim in this 2008 sexual assault case she was never named um but we do know that there is a hell of a lot of circumstantial evidence to support her case so this girl had been 15 years old in 2008 and before the case had gone to the police, she'd gone to her science teacher with another friend and that friend had asked the science teacher at Lindbergh high school quote what should we do if someone is inappropriately being touched by an adult? The teacher told the girls that they needed to tell someone about it, someone they trusted. The girl then turned to her friend and said, quote, I told him to get off of me, but he said, this is the way it's done. Just a few days after this, the same science teacher received an email from the girl's grandparents. This email had actually been sent to every teacher at the school. It asked if the girl had been acting differently at school because she had been behaving very differently at home and her parents and grandparents were at a loss as to what to do or how to help her. The science teacher emailed the school guidance counsellor about her conversation with the girl and that counsellor then forwarded it on to another counsellor who in turn forwarded it to the head teacher of the school. The head teacher asked the young girl to come and speak to him and he asked her to explain what she had been talking about when she had spoken to her teacher about being inappropriately touched. The girl said that Coach Wilder would often massage her knees during after-school practice and that this behaviour had then escalated. She said that soon he started speaking to her about the size of his penis, his sex life, his marriage, and then the two eventually exchanged phone numbers. She said he would call her a lot, especially late at night. She said that in the autumn of 2008 things had become more serious. One night he phoned her and went and picked her up. He then drove her to the school and took her to his office. At first, he started massaging her muscles, but then he told her that she was too stiff and that she needed to relax. He told her that if she had an orgasm, her body would relax. He then laughed and said, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. She asked him to stop, but he didn't stop touching her. He told her that her muscles would relapse if she kept tensing up. She eventually told him that her muscles were too sore for a massage and that she was in pain. She told him again to stop. He took his hands off her and then he went over to the door and locked it. He then moved a heavy box in front of the locked door. He turned to her and said, quote, let's switch. He then lay on the table in just his underwear and then showed the 15-year-old girl how to, quote, rub him. The school spoke to James Wilder and he denied everything. He said the girl had just been making up lies. The school took his word as gospel and agreed that the girl had been lying they felt that she had a promiscuous reputation and that she wasn't to be believed. Wow, in 2008, that's just awful. Mm-hmm. They also didn't report this to social services despite being legally obliged to do so under mandatory reporting laws. Instead, they said that they had spoken to their legal advisor and had been advised not to report it to the police or social services. Again, this was breaking the law. There are mandatory reporting laws in place for people in positions of power, such as school teachers, and them not reporting it was illegal. So it's unclear how this case made its way to the police because obviously the school hadn't reported it. But either way, in December 2008, it came to their attention. They spoke to the girl who answered their questions. And in response to the question, 
did you touch James Wilder's penis or did he touch your vagina? She responded, yes, several times. The girl described that James Wilder was circumcised, that he had a mark on the right side of his groin and that he wore boxer brief underwear. The police pulled James Wilder's phone records and that corroborated what the girl had been saying about him phoning her. The phone records showed almost daily phone calls from James Wilder to the student, most very late at night. After they arrested him, they obtained a warrant to examine his private parts. The examination confirmed that he was circumcised, he did have a mark on the right side of his groin, and that he did wear boxer brief underwear. Despite all of this, the case was dropped in February 2009 due to the lack of evidence, and because the victim was thought to be unreliable and a liar. Reports stated that she had a history of lying and making up stories, and this, despite all the evidence, was chalked up to be yet another unreliable tale of hers. It's just outrageous. I know, it is. Um, And then the school reinstated James Wilder as the coach of the male and female sports teams. The school told reporter Jessica Tester for her article for BuzzFeed News that they had no choice but to listen to what the police had told them, that there was to be no charge against James Wilder. It's never been said if the arrest of James Wilder in 2008 sparked memories in Emily Morris, but it isn't hard to imagine that it did have some effect on her. After the charges against James Wilder were dropped, Emily's life started to go downhill. She struggled heavily with alcoholism, and by 2012, she and her husband had divorced and he was granted sole custody of their children. She tried desperately to get better and attended therapy, rehab, and took various medications, but each time she got a bit better, her addiction came back and took control of her again. In 2013, Emily's friend's daughter told her that Coach Wilder had been touchy-feely with her friend and that she hadn't liked it. This sparked something in Emily and her mind once again flashed back to her childhood and the things James Wilder had done to her. Emily drank more and more and eventually she started being open and honest with her parents about her time at school. Despite the heartbreak that her parents felt seeing Emily in such a depressed and dependent state, and despite the unbelievably heartbreaking and shocking news they soon came to learn about Emily's time at school, they were so grateful to her for finally opening up. Her confession suddenly made things very clear for Joan. It finally made sense as to why Emily was in such self-annihilation mode all of the time. Joan said that it became clear to her that Emily's drinking had literally everything to do with the fact that she hated herself, She hated who she was, and she hated the things she had done. During the summer of 2013, Emily attempted rehab once again. During a period of sobriety, she told her parents that she was considering going to the police about what James Wilder had done when she'd been younger. She was really hesitant, though, and constantly said that she didn't know what to do. She said that she'd really believed that they had loved each other, and she didn't want to ruin his life. It was also difficult for Emily because she had kept in contact with James Wilder over the years. They spoke a few times every year, as she felt bad for suggesting that she might go to the police about him. Joan told her daughter that she wasn't going to ruin anyone's life. He had ruined his own, and above that, he had also ruined hers. Emily was still hesitant, but then Joan faced her daughter and told her to think about her own daughter, to think about how she'd feel if someone at school was doing this to her daughter. In that instant, a fire was lit within Emily, and she finally realised, firstly, how Joan must be feeling, but secondly, that she had been groomed and abused by James Wilder, and it could be happening to other girls too. She spoke to her friends about what had happened, and as more and more people shared her parents' viewpoint that what had happened had been wrong and had been a crime, Emily began to see it more and more for what it was. Not love, not passion, 
but sexual abuse. She wrote to a friend, quote, Honestly, it truly has taken me this long to have enough guts to say something. I've gone through a lot of personal things that were a spin-off of this happening. Really awful relationships, eating disorders, etc. I just didn't care about myself. I finally have gotten to the point where I, I just can't do that anymore. She also wrote that she had recently spoken to James Wilder and that he had been so ignorant and so pleased with himself about what had happened between them when she was a teenager and this, understandably, made Emily incredibly upset. With the realisation that those around her believed her, Emily had to make the decision on whether she was going to go to the police. She was understandably incredibly wary. She was now 33 and the sexual abuse had occurred over 18 years before. She wasn't sure if the police would do anything to help her, but she knew she had to try. On June 17th, 2013, Emily Morris walked into her local police department and asked to be interviewed regarding a series of sexual assaults that had happened in the past. The officer there took her details and arranged for two detectives from St. Louis County Police Department to go to her house two days later to formally interview her. As scheduled, the detectives went to Emily's house and listened to her recount the years of sexual abuse that she had suffered at the hands of her athletics coach. She was emotional and the detectives asked her if she had been drinking. She told them that she had, and she told them that she was an alcoholic. Detective Dennis Cook said that it was clear that she had been drinking, but he didn't see it as her being an unreliable victim. He knew that she was using alcohol as a coping mechanism. Detective Cook also commented that the things Emily told him were most definitely of a criminal nature. I heard you like sigh then. Did you think that he was going to be like, she's not reliable because she'd been drinking? Yeah. Yeah, I'm so, he was so amazing, um, Detective Dennis Cook. He was just so brilliant. He, he like championed for her like the entire time it was amazing. This must be so close to the other case where the girl was deemed unreliable victim. Yeah, so this is 2013 and that happened in 2008. So yeah, it's not far off. I mean, oh, right, what, five okay. years? Oh no, that's a bigger gap than I thought. Oh, right, okay. So over the next few days, the police were in constant contact with Emily regarding her case. They said that they felt her case was strong, but that it would be difficult to prosecute without a confession. Emily said there was no way he would ever confess, but that she might be able to get him to admit something over the phone. The police set up a wiretap on her phone and she called James Wilder. After just a few seconds, James told Emily to meet her. She said no, she was busy, but he said he wouldn't speak to her over the phone. She agreed to meet him in a car park and he abruptly ended the call. Oh. How did he know then, do you think? She might, or was she maybe quite obvious? No, so it's quite... No, I don't really think that she made it very obvious. It was just... He was, like, saying loads of stuff like, oh, you know what the government's like these days? They'll be, like, watching you. So it's clear that he obviously, like, probably thought he did have something to hide. Um, But he was very kind of conspiracy theorist about it. Not, ne- I don't think he necessarily thought that Emily was, like, sat in a room with a police officer. Mm. But it just seems strange, though, if they caught up, like, normally a few times a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm, the thing is, I'm not sure, actually, thinking about it, whether those catch-ups happened in person or whether no, they right, happened right, over the phone. phone. Yeah, and also, I guess the 2008 thing must have made him more cautious. Mm. Yeah, 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 so true, yeah, exactly. Being arrested and things like that must have made him more cautious. Um, So, yeah, the police and her family told Emily that was enough was enough and that it was one thing to speak to him on the phone, but that she couldn't go and meet him. But Emily was adamant. If she was going to do this, she was going to do it properly, and she was determined to stop him. She told the police to wire her up, and then she drove to the car park to meet James Wilder. 
The entire recording has not been made available, but where parts have been documented by True Crime Daily and Oxygen, I have been able to piece together some bits of audio taken from those documentaries and also transcripts from the recording. So in the recording, you can hear Emily in her own car saying to herself, well, I hope this goes well. Then you hear the noise of her leaning out of her window and asking James whether she should get into his car or if he was going to get into hers. You can then hear her opening her door and getting into his car. Before she even has the chance to close the door, James Wilder says, You're not wired, are you? Emily scoffs and says, Jim, no. And then she quickly changed the conversation. Can you imagine how you must have felt in that moment? Yeah. And I do find it weird that he's so... Like, there's being paranoid and then there's having, I don't know, quite a gut instinct. It just seems weird, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is really, really weird. Um... When she got in the car, she said that she wanted to meet him to tell him about some positive things in her life. She said that she was on new medication um, and that she was seeing a new therapist and that her therapist has suggested that she see him to help her with her recovery. This made Wilder nervous and he says to Emily, maybe this doctor told you to bust my nuts. And Emily said, no, no, he isn't that kind of person. They then talked for a little bit longer about this and that and it's clear that James Wilder started to open up a little bit. The voice you're about to hear is James Wilder's from that recording. You know, it, it, here, it's a weird deal because if you go 90% of the world, 15's legal. So if I go over and boff a 15-year-old in Spain, I can do all day in the streets, whatever, and <laughs> nothing would happen. You touch a 16-year-old and you go to jail here. So what do you think of that? Uh, yeah, it's pretty dumbing, isn't it? I mean, mm. you're a grown man, why 15, 16, like, it should all be out of your mind, you shouldn't be interested in any of it, I'm sorry, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, be with someone your own age, I think also, like, his choice of words, pretty derogatory, that, yeah, he just clearly sees it as his kind of right, um, and also strange that, and how matter how long they've been talking, that they would kind of get into that conversation, like, I know, obviously, she's, like, goading him into it, um, but the fact he's not more guarded about just saying basically implying it's stupid that he can't sleep with a 15 year old uh is pretty indicative of his character i think yeah it's yeah it's really indicative of his character and i think this obviously is really damning like what he's saying but it was difficult because i think emily being sat there kind of knew like it's not a confession like she needed more oh yeah yeah it's not Yeah, so then in order to kind of like goad him a little bit more, she started talking to him about the first time that he touched her, that time in the park behind the trees um, when they played chicken. On that occasion, he had driven her home and had performed oral sex on her in the recording. So the entire recording is 87 minutes long. Um, But Emily comments on moments that happen between them. And each time James Wilder kind of rebuts it or corrects her and he kind of changes the narrative. So... It does sound like at points that he knows he's being recorded, but then at other points he lets it slip and it's quite clear that if he did know he was being recorded, he wouldn't say things like this. And you finally, still I did. Felt, I felt <laughs> not for very long. And I could tell by your... <laughs> and I was like, okay, um, what did I say? Do you really want to do this? I think you said no. I, I don't remember. All I and remember I was like, is okay. going out in the trampoline. I said, and... let's go outside. And you're like, okay. <laughs> and we went out there. And once we got to the trampoline, I felt like 2,000 times better. I'm like, okay. So, yeah, it would have been kick just to have had a non-sexual relationship at that time. 
so that was in relation to the first incident at Emily's house where she had told him to stop and he had. Um, in this part of the recording, the transcript also reveals that he told her that the incident may never have happened if her parents hadn't asked him to drop her home. And he like properly like blames Joan for it. He's like, oh, if your mum hadn't asked me to drop you home, then maybe that never would have happened. Piece of shit. Yeah. So like I said, the recording was 87 minutes long um, and other parts of it include Emily saying, do you remember being in that bathroom at Clydesdale Park and that guy walked in on us? James Wilder responded, I remember being scared to kiss you. Emily said, you never kissed me because you said it was cheating. James Wilder said, it was cheating. And also I thought, I don't know where th- where we could take this. I don't know where this is going to go. James then, throughout the entire conversation, starts putting the blame back onto Emily and he suggests that he didn't want to do the things that he had done, but that he also didn't want to make 16-year-old Emily mad. You know, there's. I feel so protective of you that I feel like there were times, right off the bat even, I mean, we ignored it, we fought through it, but there were times I did not want to do anything because I just didn't think it was where we, what we should do, but we do it anyway. Yeah. And part of you're persuasive, and, you know, I do I want to make you mad? You'd get mad at me, and so like, okay, let's go, you know? And it wasn't like it hurt. <laughs> you know, it was, yeah. I did enjoy the end result, but that, I was in more protective mode. I think it's that particular recording that like makes me so, so angry. Like how he puts it back on her and says like that she was persuasively, she was 16, 16. Yeah, it's disgusting. It's the sort of behavior that people use at the time, which is, yeah, kind of blaming the victim and trying to make someone think that it's their idea and they want this. But the fact he's trying to use it when she's an adult woman years later is, yeah, Mm. it says everything really. Mm hmm. So later on in the recording, he then went on to discuss videos that the teachers were shown at the start of each school year, videos that highlighted sexual grooming and inappropriate behaviour between teachers and students. He denied any similarity between what had happened on those videos and what he had done to Emily. Always in my mind is like, I wish anybody that knew our thing would know that there was no premeditation like because hmm. we have to watch these. Oh, it's horrible. It makes almost throw up every fucking beginning of school year. We have to watch the those kind of videos. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, grooming and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, uh, you know what I mean? Because I just, you know, I've been there, but I didn't do that. Even in your case, we did something that wasn't right according to our laws these days. Right? But you know I'm not a creeper so I guess my I kind of want to know when I like listen to that I mean what do you think about it do you think that he's like genuinely disassociated from the events and like doesn't believe that he's a sexual predator or a groomer or do you think he's just like saying this is like a defense mechanism of sorts kind of thing uh I don't know I thought it was weird how he said even in your case which to me made it sound like he was kind of acknowledging that she wasn't the only one um Mm -hmm. I think that he was referring to the 2008 um the 2008 victim there because Emily brings up that 2008 case because obviously it like went in the news and things like that. Um so I think yeah it came from it came after that conversation which is yeah I agree. I think it's weird that he's kind of like separated the two and that he's acknowledged that he did do something with the other girl. Yeah. Um yeah and then I think I I would say like to say use the word disassociated makes it sound like 
he's really consciously far removed from it. I don't really think that's probably, I think that's probably like too extreme. Um, what I do think is that there is like going to be some, probably some level of cognitive dissonance here. Like he may well watch those videos and be a bit repulsed by them. Um, because like his belief is probably that like touching children or abusing children is wrong. Um, but obviously his actions are completely opposite. So he will probably be in some kind of like internal conflict and maybe like to resolve that he has convinced himself that he's not doing anything wrong. I think from all of the recordings you can surmise like he's definitely quite fixated on age, isn't he? I think and what he probably separates is child abuse of very, very young children and child abuse mm -hmm. of teenagers who can't legally consent. I think from listening to him in his head, that's what he's differentiating between. Um, and obviously we know, you know, he shouldn't be. Like, they can't consent. He is abusing a position of power. Like, these are students that are desperate to get on teams, desperate to impress him, but and he is exploiting that to his own gain, mm -hmm. in, to you know, to sexually abuse them. So... Um, whilst it's obvious to us that's wrong, I think, yeah, for him, I do definitely think he, whilst I'm not saying he's completely dissociated and doesn't know he's doing something wrong, he does know he's doing something wrong, um, but I still think he probably does think he's better than people who, yeah, abuse very, very young children or something, um, and I don't think, and I think, like, that is quite common, like, I think we've talked about it before, like, how even in prisons there's, like, a hierarchy of what crimes are worse than others and I think that's probably what's going on here like he, he doesn't want to label himself a, an offender a sexual predator um so instead he's like very gripped with the whole age thing and like 15 16 it's legal in some other countries so why is it not here that sort of narrative he's clearly very absorbed in that's a really really interesting analysis of it I'd never thought of it like that when I was like researching it that never crossed my mind but I think that is so true I think yeah maybe that yeah there is actually when you listen to that and when you kind of hear his story there is a clear distinction in his mind between what he's doing and yeah very young very young ages I think that's actually really interesting so I actually really can see that he's trying not necessarily to disassociate himself from what he's done but by likening it to Spain and other countries like that is to say well it's not really that bad because like in some places it's fine it's just because the laws that we have here are like so strict or whatever yeah and I think the word is almost like not dissociate, like, but actually convinced, like he's trying to convince mm -hmm. himself that he hasn't done something wrong. And like, yeah, try and stop that like internal conflict he's got going on and like convince Emily as well, probably. Like, mm. you know, he's still, what he's exploited all these times is like these kids who do look up to him and do like need him and value him. Um, and like now he's faced with this adult woman who maybe he's like sensing is questioning like what you know was that was that right and yeah I think some of it is like trying to make himself believe and her that mm -hmm. yeah you know it was only just wrong you know if you know, we'd been in Spain it wouldn't have been at all type thing yeah yeah I think that's I think that's a really really interesting way of looking at it. I think I think you're probably dead on to be honest so after sitting in the car with him and recording this 87 minute conversation Emily left and drove back to her parents. When she got out of the car, she burst into tears and didn't stop crying all evening. The strength that it must have taken for her to face her abuser like that, despite everything, despite the fact that she had maintained a friendship with him over the years, she had now come to the realisation that what had happened to her had been sexual abuse. She said it was difficult for her to have to face her perpetrator, someone she thought that she'd once loved, someone she trusted. 
It must have caused her a lot of pain to have just laughed with him and joked with him and to validate all his statements and his blasé views in relation to what he had done to her for over 80 minutes in order to get this confession. Emily gave this taped recording to the police and the next month, in August 2013, James Wilder was arrested. He was charged with six counts of statutory sodomy in the second degree. And I think that is where we're going to end this episode today. Please, please join us next week to hear what happened next and to hear the tragic ending to this case. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.